Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. I'm Saskia. And I'm Chantelle. And this week is our first week back after the summer. And unfortunately, Tiso is unwell, so can't be with us. But lucky you, we're giving you a third alternative to Women's Hour. It's our third? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, that's weird. I can't believe we started a year ago. I know, it feels kind of a bit like... (gasps) Yeah, lots happened. Yes, the first thing I'm going to do is talk about our summers a little bit and like the things we've been thinking about because usually what we do is just head in with something we're really angry about this week but obviously because of the longer break I would say we've had a more reflective time than, an, I don't know about you, but... Yeah, I definitely, even though there's so many things in the news which are really infuriating, I don't necessarily feel more at peace with the news, but I just don't listen to Radio 4 yeah. or read... I don't even read The Guardian as much anymore. I read the odd article. I can't. But, like, I just I can't. can't. There's just so many things that have been... Ha- but, anyway, last summer, basically, I felt yeah. so angry at yes. the end of the summer. But this summer, I just feel a bit ambivalent basically what we need is another general election to just like make us angry again yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's what happened last summer isn't that crazy oh god there's so many god there's so many things that happened last summer and we were just like yeah whereas yeah like i uh have stopped listening to the radio i like start i stopped reading newspapers i've just been reading books it's been great i've been reading quite a lot of academic journals this summer which has been obviously work but at the same time it's been enjoyable um it's been good to switch off from the shit Definitely. But at the same time, that doesn't mean we don't care about the shit. No, like we, it's just the. It's like the storm is brewing. That's it what it is. Feels like. It does feel like the storm's brewing, and there's not really much else. I, I think we've we spent the last year ranting about how racist, <laughs> sexist, and classist the country is. Everyone knows our position on that. It doesn't really it hasn't really changed <laughs> unless we get a complete overhaul. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So yeah. Why don't you tell me, Chantal, about what you've been reflecting on this summer? So I've been reflecting on something that I'm calling partial privileges. So what it means to be partially privileged and who has the ability to negotiate spaces. I think there's something to be said. The things I want to speak about are race, class and gender, but how they interact within certain institutions that I've entered personally myself. So about a year ago, my partner was diagnosed with cancer and he's better now, but it's been a year of treatment and trying to get him better, basically. And he's good now. He was... I don't want to say savvy because it's it doesn't seem savvy to have to invest in this sort of thing, but it, in the long term, it looks like it saved his life. But he had children very young and he took out private health insurance quite a while ago because he was working so hard and propping up two households and was always worried that he would get ill at a younger age. And his premonition was right and he did get sick. And he had got private health care. And what this meant was, is when he was about to get really ill and almost was close to dying, he was able to be saved basically very quickly because he had private health care. I'm not, I'm not necessarily, I don't want to rant too much about the ins and outs of private health care. I just want to sort of talk about what my position's been like in various hospitals and spaces. Obviously the fact that, my partner's had treatment in 
private hospitals in itself, like that is one of the ultimate privileges. Like it's so bizarre how we're in a moment that it's like 20th century healthcare right now. Like if you have money or if you've paid insurance, then you have access to the best healthcare. If you don't, then you access the NHS. Who are the NHS is amazing, but they're so stretched because of austerity, because of so many like like it's it's shocking how the difference in treatment that you can get now. But also, what's interesting is it's the same doctors and stuff. Yeah, like these people who are experts in like all kinds oncology, of oncology, yeah, yeah, oncology, whatever. Like they work in the NHS. Yeah, it's just that. There's not enough of them to no, go round. There isn't. So there's also a huge market or like a huge demand for them to work privately because the waiting lists or whatever are so long for those specialists. Yeah. But yeah, like basically what you're paying for is the same people, but just like now, not yeah. six months down the line when you could be dead. Yeah. That's exactly, exactly what it is. And we have benefited from that for over a year now. Um, so I really want to reiterate how privileged me and my family um, have been. Um but one of the things that's been really is in, that is interesting. I can find it interesting rather than it being too painful. Is the way I have been treated in these spaces. So, first of all, there was been a lot of occasions within hospitals where people have not let me through doors or not let me access certain areas because they didn't believe me that my partner was staying within the establishment, and I've had people like oh what do they call them like in private hospitals you have like people that just walk around just like being not like do you know what I mean not like not nurses nurses, but people that are like you know in hotels you have like concierge there's basically like hospital concierge but like that walk around so they're not orderlies they're not like they're not like pushing trolleys no no, no, taking supplies no they're just like literally just there being and you can ask them questions about where stuff is (laughs) what Anyway, this is like honestly, I felt like the amount the the, the the money that I honestly have seen in this past year, like we're not wealthy, but we're very privileged. But the the level of wealth I've seen in these hospitals is unbelievable. Wow, a few famous people as well, but I can't say who. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I've had people follow me. Um, um, my partner had a couple of serious surgeries and. When he was coming out of the surgeries and he'd been in them for like 10 hours, there was various points when nurses wouldn't let me go and see him. And this wasn't because he wasn't able to be seen. It's because they were checking that I was who I said I was. And there was one point when I had to get quite angry with one of the staff saying, this is my fucking boyfriend who has just had fucking liver surgery. I need to see him right now. And, And there were wives that were going through like, to the ICU as well. Uh, yeah, anyway, there's just so many things that were just so how irritating. Did, and, like, how did they even, like, ascertain that you were who you said you were? Yeah, so looking at the records, looking at who his named person was. But, like, I had to go through that, like, process of checking who I was at various points. So, like... What's well, just, like... Ah, <laughs> oh, it's just unbelievable. But you know what? But it's, it's so believable. It's so believable. And there's a number of things at play. There's ageism as well, which I didn't forgot to because I do actually like if you know me I think I I think I look about five years younger than I am do you reckon I think you look your age but then obviously oh, really? I just know how old you are oh well, when that I makes first met you I think 
this is also partly because like of my own insecurities and stuff, but I totally thought you were way older than me. <gasps> oh no, yeah, no. I always you... get mistaken for being much younger. Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I find it's a really bit of a problem. It, uh, at the moment, it's a bit of a problem. And this year, it's been a bit of a problem yeah. as well. Because as well, as well as dealing with the actual fact that my partner has had cancer, I've also got to manage these like microaggressions yeah. like which just within this happen which is it's just people. yeah it's just really di- it's really frustrated but I mean and also what's really difficult about this is he had such amazing care and the nurses were so so lovely and I know that the majority of people had they known how they'd made me feel in these various situations it would both probably be like oh god I didn't mean it like that we just wanted mm. to chat I'm not trying to defend them but no, it, it but just feels would, like they gray would get defensive I like that think. is not what would happen what would happen like but you said this yourself like, yeah if you complain to the hospital, what would happen? Yeah. They, they would, would get defensive. Yeah. Or, or they would fire the people or like it would yeah, come that's down what, on the people who are the most what, vulnerable. This is what was happening. Like, I was having conversations with my partner about this in the hospital at the time. Like, I can't believe the way some members of staff here are treating me. But I don't want to complain because if I complain, this is a private this is a private hospital they might get sacked and they're in precarious positions themselves. So it's like this weird like and also one of the things that I've been thinking about in terms of partial privilege is even though I experience what I experience in that hospital, how the process would probably be much worse, if not definitely much worse, had I been a darker skinned black woman. Like there is absolutely no doubt about it. So there are certain privileges in those spaces that I get as a light skinned woman, a light skinned black woman, but that doesn't take away from the fact that I also experience racism as well. So that's what I've been thinking a lot about, like how partial privilege is really important to identify, as well as, well as identifying the actual privileges that you have, you can also identify the ones that maybe don't or that are partial or the negotiable. As I've got older and become more economically secure, I have the ability to complain I have the ability to say, no, that's not all right. Like, if if I put myself on the line, that's an example being in this hospital, like, I'm not going to get chucked out of the hospital. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's about reflecting on those sort of things is what I've been Yeah, doing. like, your right to be in that space is not certain. No. Like, that's what I guess it means to say that your position is negotiable. Yeah. Or, like, you're constantly having to negotiate, like... To what extent are you being accepted in that space? And to what extent do you have to fight to be there? It's also as well, like, with these sorts of things, one, I do have to, like, keep checking myself and thinking, is this just a distraction of the wider issues of racism that need more attention? So things like austerity, things like how the police treat black people. Like, is me talking about my experience... Of um. microaggressions in a private hospital, <laughs> distracting from the larger, probably m- much more pressing issues of racism that makes up our but it's all country. Connected, I know it? it is all connected, but like I, ha- it's another important, uh, important lesson of privilege. It's saying that even though I experience these things, they are difficult and it's not nice, but it isn't the end of the world for me. So, like, say we're comparing it to... A friend of mine works in a big company and it's, it's like, an area of work which is very, very difficult for women to survive in Mm -hmm. because as soon as you have a family, like, you're fucked, basically, unless you have a house husband or one of the older women in her firm basically decides they wanted a child 
and so had IVF and then basically has four nannies four nannies who work around the clock looking after that child now she can have exactly the same career after she gave birth as she did before she gave birth like let's not even begin to reflect on what happens to that child but like (laughs) you know like the kind of struggles that she has gone through to have a kid and the kind of struggles that a woman in any kind of precarious situation you know what I mean like the kinds of stories that you get in the news about women struggling to maintain their jobs and I'm not talking about careers I just mean paid employment when they have children after that like you know when they're trying to balance mm. childcare because it is usually the woman mm. who has to balance childcare with whatever job that she's doing. Mm. Those two situations are not comparable. And frankly, if that woman were to publish an article being like, my really hard life as a high up person in this company earning loads of money, paying for my four nannies, I would be like, that woman is taking up space. Yeah. That's, and that is bullshit. Yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas like, if I read the same article by the person who cleans that woman's office, yeah, I'd be like, yeah, like these... Like, not that one story is more real than the other, but yeah. the fact is that the first woman has basically got all the privilege that a man has, except for having to, like, yeah. except for having to deal with misogyny at work, which obviously is a thing. Mm-hmm. I think the difference with your story is that that is not a story that is being told anywhere. Yeah. Like, no one is hearing that story. No one, like, no one even thinks about those things because their response is like, oh, well, I don't see colour. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like it's, it's, people get defensive. It's, it's 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 funny because I don't know how I, I don't. I'm I'm thinking about this theory, but I'm going to say it out loud, and I might develop it in future podcasts. But there are middle class institutions. There are upper middle class institutions, and I feel like the middle class institutions are places like university and even like libraries, like big libraries, like Senate House, British Library, and whatever upper middle class institutions like private healthcare that is like a space that is so foreign to me and I feel like in the middle class institutions people are more likely to be like oh I don't see colour I don't see colour like we're liberal like blah 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 blah. but in the upper middle class institutions I feel like what I experienced in that space it's we're, we're allowed to be we're allowed to be suspicious of you because most criminals are brown so that, that's fine like you need to prove to us that your boyfriend is having surgery here because the statistics show that you're more likely to be an intruder do you know what I mean like there is something there is something really distinct about those two spaces okay so like the kind they're, of they're ways both problematic yeah, like yeah. the middle class institution is still very problematic it's the ways they're pleased yeah yeah interesting yeah because you're right like obviously having private health care is a crazy privilege massive like you know, and especially in a country where healthcare, particularly for things like cancer, is free mm-hmm. at the point of use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yes, it is a crazy privilege, but I think it is still important to think about the ways in which that privilege is maintained, basically. Like, yeah. there's, like, if everyone were allowed to have it, it wouldn't be seen as a privilege. So, there's got to be ways in which the, those spaces are pleased, which is not. It's, and it's not basically what you're saying is it is not just about the money. Yeah, definitely. And I think is that the other thing that I've been thinking about these partial privileges um, over the summer is the consistent dehumanisation of black women. 
Like, it is, it's just rife. Like, and obviously it always has been. It's not fair to say that it's just happening at the moment. It's not. It's just something that we've seen throughout history. But I, in that space, I'm not quite human until I've proved who I am. Like, so I'm not human and then I'm black. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it, yeah. it's a process of... Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. You, yeah, you don't have the right to be a person. mm Mm-hmm. And then when you do have the right to be a person, you're categorised as, like, other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is. And like I said, I still am. I'm still not human. Then I'm black. But then I'm also mixed race. Then I'm also lighter-skinned as well in those spaces. Yeah, which it's does, complicated. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's complicated, <laughs> which means I will be treated a little bit more human yeah. than my darker-skinned sisters. Yeah. And what's, yeah, it's interesting as well, Chantal, because you've always, since I've known you, had blonde hair. Yes. And very <laughs> nice for at the moment. Why are we talking about this? Because no, I, I know. feel like you it had is. some kind, like yeah. something has shifted for you, I feel like. Yeah, I feel much more, I feel, I think because I grew up in predominantly white spaces and went to university in predominantly white spaces and it wasn't until the last five years that I've actually lived and been around apart from my family black people and people of color and I think even in my own self-image I was drawn to things like having lighter hair for the wrong reasons I think I I liked having lighter hair like don't get me wrong and I probably will do it again at some point like it's okay but I think the reasons will be different next time and I've gone back to my natural hair color Um, partly because I've definitely been inspired by people like at the forefront of the natural hair movement, like 100%, like people like Jamelia, like really, really inspired me. Um, But also I just feel a lot more at peace in my own racialised body, I guess. Like, and I don't think I felt at peace with it for a long time because I I think because of things like class, that I experienced quite a lot of racism growing up and in early adult life. But now... I'm equipped to deal with it, I think, a lot better than I have been before. So, yeah, you're right. The hair is political. It's a political <laughs> moment. That's what it is political. <laughs> what have you been thinking about this summer? This summer? So, I've done a lot of things this summer. One of the things I did is I went to Paris for mm. a week. Um, and it was kind of um, a return for me because I was an au pair in Paris, which is like... A kind of fancy nanny. Um, so, is it a fancy? Na- What's the difference between an au pair and a nanny? So, a nanny, I mean, is like hopefully someone who's like actually qualified to do the job, whereas <laughs> au pair is like au pair, a teenager. Au pair is often an, a teenager, like an eighteen-year-old, usually, but you can be any age. Um, usually, a woman, but sometimes a man um, who goes to another country and does very poorly paid childcare mm. in return for lodging and food. And in Paris, I also got my Oyster card, which was great. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, did they give, they pay your travel as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. Um, I mean, yeah, you, it would have been very expensive. Like, so I got 80 euros a week pocket money. Um, and then I was lucky enough to have my own, like, teeny tiny apartment. Um, but, like, it was still great mm. because... Yeah, the place where there was not space for me, basically, in the flat where they live. But 
they were not paying for that flat like it belonged to the grandmother. Yeah. And um, they only ate pasta, so I don't think I was that expensive for them, basically. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> like, it was hard to remember that I was being giving somewhere to live when you're being when you work out that you're paid like sixty cents an hour. But right. the point is, I was living in Paris. I was eighteen years old. It was the first time I'd left home. And although I've been back a couple of times since to see the family, I haven't really spent time like in like in and around Paris, just like seeing what the city's like now. So August is like a weird time to be in Paris because French people have way more holiday than English people. Um, like everyone has like seven weeks off basically, except like the most precarious workers, I guess. That's so good. How can we get that here? I mean, interestingly, Macron, the French president, um, is trying very hard to dismantle. Like France is not like the UK in that like, Obviously, it's a capitalist country, but they have such strong social security, employee mm. protection, like all like employment, like employee rights are much better protected than here. They've got very yeah. strong unions. Um, but Macron basically is kind of like I think he's basically like Tony Blair and Thatcher sort of rolled into one. Like, do you think that's because they overthrew their monarchy? I honestly don't know why it is. I don't know why it is. I don't know what it is that's. Like, um, yeah, we'll have to get someone on to talk about the French psyche. Yeah. <laughs> um, except for au pair workers. Fucking hell, like, you have no... It's a cultural exchange. Mm-hmm. So I had terrible things happening to au pairs. Like, one uh, person was American. And so, obviously, if you're in the EU, like, you can just travel around and, like, no problem mm-hmm. because you have that privilege. If you're American, like, you're there on an au pair visa. Uh, if your family kick you out, what happens to you? If you're from Colombia, like I knew Colombian au pairs, what happens if a family kicks you out? This woman was, I don't know if she actually was a lesbian, but she was seen as a lesbian by the family and was subjected to all this like homophobic abuse. That's shocking. And then they evicted her. Mm. And she almost had to, like she almost got deported. I mean, obviously if you're American, it's less of a big deal than if you're from Colombia maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, whatever. There's a lot of problems with the system. Um, But... Yeah, it was really interesting. So Paris is just like, like you know, it is really it is a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place to be. What's really interesting about it is the kind of way in which the space of Paris is racialized. Mm. Like, so August is when everyone goes on holiday. Mm-hmm. Or so I thought. <laughs> right. So everyone's away like my French family were away like the person like there's loads of Airbnbs around because all the people who own property or on holiday like everyone has like a house in the country or some a friend's house in the country or they go abroad like whatever Paris is relatively empty because it's just the tourist spots are busy and then everyone else is away so walking around the city I was like god there are like a lot more black people than I remember there being like a lot more and like certain areas of the city were just full of black people. I was just like, wow, like, I just... Did I just not notice? And then I realised it's just because all the white people are on holiday. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know why that took so long for me to work it out, but yeah, I was like, God, they're yeah, just... Yeah. Like, obviously, loads of France's colonial possessions, once they stopped being their colonial possessions, there's been, like, lots of waves of migration, just yeah. the same as in the UK. Um... And, you know, they are racialized minorities mm-hmm. and excluded from many different areas of French society. But, yeah, it was really shocking to see that basically all the French people in Paris were black. Mm. All of them. Because 
those are the people who do not have the means to mm. go on holiday for a month and spend the whole of August like pissing around in the French countryside. Mm. Like it was like, am I an idiot? Like I just like did not. It took a while for it to occur to me. But then what was also really interesting was I was staying on um, a boulevard which had a market twice weekly, and I had noticed this when I was back in Paris in June that like when I lived there, so everyone, all the white people in Paris are very fashion conscious and that means that everyone wears exactly the same thing. Yeah, like, it's such that. There's yeah. so much conformity in it and, like, people, if you are not wearing the same as everyone else, people, like, what okay, the fuck yeah, are you wearing? Yeah. Like, I had a French friend who moved back to France after living in London for several years and she was wearing a bright blue skirt and someone looked at her and went, yeah, we can see that you've been living in London. Wow. She's wearing bright blue. <laughs> so everyone when I lived in Paris wore black, beige, grey sometimes pale pink mm. in different combinations <laughs> and I like I do not wear black like I was like always sticking out because I like a pattern mm. like I like a really like in your face vibrant colour yeah um, I didn't have like long straight mousy blondy hair, hair. Yeah. like everyone just looked like, and everyone's wearing a designer well. oh my god everyone is yeah thin. it's like there's a lot of body policing going on um, at the moment the fashion is for African fabrics so like all white people are wearing African fabric it's so like I was just like what the fuck is going on and like I'm sure I've absolutely no doubt that there are people in France who are very critical of this Mm. but like it's it's really and like you know they were selling these in the market for like it was like 50 euros for a shirt 70 euros for a dress like it is really expensive stuff I just, I, I couldn't get my head around it. Yeah, so what do we call that? I don't want to say it's cultural appropriation, but it is just, like, gaining from... I don't know, there's something really vulgar about it, but I can't... I don't yeah, know I think express. I think what it is that is so... It's, you know, it's the contrast between being absolute... Like, this absolute exclusion that goes on. Like, France, one of the interesting things about France is that after the Second World War, because... France was so complicit in the Mm. Holocaust. Mm -hmm. You know, like, they deported basically all their Jewish people. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are plaques all over Paris saying things like, the Jewish people from this... This is to memorialise the Jewish people who went to the school who were deported. It's like, who were deported or who Who we we deported. deported. (laughs) Like, it's really... The tone... Like, some of the signs are like... Obviously, like, we deported them and we are, like, trying to atone for that. Yeah. But lots of the signs are just, like, they were, like, you know, like, very, like, mm. they were deported. Something, un- like, undescribable mm. happened. Like, we don't mm. even know what happened. They just left one day. Mm. Um, so, yeah, France is really complicit in that. There's a lot of, like, national shame around it. So, after the Second World War, they introduced a law that you're not allowed to do surveys that ask people about their race or ethnicity. Yeah. So... France as a country, there is absolute like they have no idea what percentage of the population are like kind of a racialized minority. Yeah. So Because they're colourblind, Saskia. Yeah, they don't thing. see in colour. Yeah, they don't see colour. Like it's not an issue. Like everyone anyone can be French. And like um in their constitution, there was something like everyone is equal. And there was a phrase which was like, regardless of race, and then it had some other characteristics. And Macron has taken the word race out of the Constitution. Yeah, yeah, I know. And like, Macron himself has said so many horrendous things about Africans, like inverted commas. Like, trouble with Africans is they all have eight children. Like, they don't have to look after themselves. Yeah, like, they don't have to look after themselves. Like, no wonder they're all so poor. Mm. And it's like, given how 
France, along with many other European powers, mm. like totally exploit. Like, I don't, yeah, I don't need to go into yeah, it, yeah, but like, yeah, yeah. it's no secret what France did, particularly to North Africa. Yeah, like if you look up the history of like Algeria, like France did not good things. Yeah, like bad things. Very, very bad things happen there. Is there any European country that's dealt with their complicity in? Is there any? Mm, I guess Germany to an extent doing denazification, but well, yeah, they did do denazification, but I wonder how aware they are of the German colonial projects, and you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. What are, is the actual histories what, there yeah. re- re- before World War Two? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like what? Like because of like Germany was like doing what everyone else was doing in Africa. Yeah. Like Britain got a lot of. Germany's colonial possessions and yeah. carried on the proud history of like murder and yeah. genocide and rape, rape, whatever was going on, exploitation. Um, so yeah, it was just it was really interesting and like to see to see that in a very different way. I mean, like the thing that I remember most about being eighteen is um, I think I've spoken about this once before is the kinds of like misogyny yeah. I experienced in the street. But actually, what I realized going back. Like, don't get me wrong, misogyny in France, really, really bad. Like, yeah. <laughs> really bad and very, like, I think much more in your face than the UK. Like, I'm not saying people mm. are not misogynistic because obviously they are and obviously, like, you and I experience it yeah, every day yeah. in so many different ways. But in France, it's, like, totally unapologetic mm. and very nasty. Um, and, yeah, I definitely really disturbed me as an 18 year old the way people attacked you in the street like mainly verbally but sometimes physically mm. and I realised when I went back like these guys I think I told you this before Chantal this group of guys are like walking up to me it's like half 11 at night I'm by myself walking down a little street there's no one else there going excuse me excuse me excuse me and like you know like, really like I was I could tell they were going to say something to me and like so as they were walking past me I just turned around and stared at them and they stared at me and they just had nothing to say. Like, and I was just like, oh. Like, it was almost just like, God, it's so impersonal. And, like, it was like, a, I was basically, like, looking at them being like, yeah, yes, can what? I help? Yeah, I was like, you got my attention. That has happened, do you know what? <laughs> Not even in France, in the UK, that has happened to me a few times recently when I've said to people, hello? Yeah, like, can like, I help you? Can I help? And they're like, uh, uh, dog, <laughs> give me a number. <laughs> or like, <laughs> it's like, wow, you are pathetic. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it was quite like nice to realise that like I'm not 18 anymore. And yeah, I don't have to put up with that kind of shit. Mm-hmm. Even like you know, no one should have to. No one but... should have to. But yeah, it can, like it was sort of a relief to be like, oh yeah, like I don't care. Yeah, very good. Yeah, I like that. So yeah, that was my that was what I was thinking about. Um, also, I read some really great books that were not academic. What did and you that was read? Really nice. I read Meat Space by Nikesh Shukla. Oh, yeah. It was really was good. This, is it his first book? It's his second. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, and I read Sing Unburied Sing by Jessamyn Ward, which was amazing. Like, she was shortlisted for some prize in the UK, and I think she won one in America. Really worth reading. Go oh, and read it. It was really good. good. It's like subverting the American road novel. Mm. by making it about black people. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, yeah. 
I've read, I've told you that I read Afua Hirsch is British. Yeah, what did you think? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, worth reading, you can borrow mine. Okay. And I also have been reading Stuart Hall Conversation Project and Legacies, which has been so good because, sorry, I know we didn't plan to talk about this, but it just reminded me, you said what you read. Going back to, I have read quite a lot of Stuart Hall anyway, but going back, having, I read quite a lot of it my first year, my PhD, but going back, it's really interesting how much Stuart Hall's writing makes me feel like I can belong in the academy. Does that does that make like he yeah. just writes about like he the way he talks about theory and practice and theory just being obsolete if you're not thinking about practice. Like yeah. how amazing is that? Like, is like, <laughs> and what he means by that is basically that like if it theory, doesn't relate to the everyday yeah. and you can't translate it into the everyday, yeah. then what's the point? And that's not to say like it's what we talk about all the time. Mm. It's like if you're not thinking about what relevance your work has to the social world, why are you doing it? Yeah. Like, if you're not an activist, why are you a sociologist? If you're a sociologist, I do why think there's quite a lot of people that there, there is a group of people that are sociologists that don't agree with us on that, which, I know. Is, in, which is interesting. I know. And I feel like both sides are quite vocal at the moment. Oh, yeah, see, I'm just not really paying attention to this debate, but, yeah. That's good. I don't think there's any point in paying attention to it. So Chantal works for a journal, so she has to, but I'm just like, I'm going to read a book now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, because I've also, I've read Malcolm X's autobiography. (gasps) Oh, yeah! I finished it this Monday, and then I had to go and do a research interview, and I felt like I just needed, like, a few hours to sit by myself and think about it. Like, it was so powerful. That means it's a powerful book. I mean, like, obviously it is, like if you know anything about it, like, you'll know that the whole, like, Black Power movement in the US was very, like, inspired by Malcolm X's autobiography. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a book that has changed the world, basically. Mm -hmm. And it's an amazing book, really worth reading. Like, you know, there's all kinds of ways in which he's inspiring. Like, his attitude to education, Mm -hmm. like, just made me think, God, we are so lucky to have an education, mm. to be able to continue having an education. Um, his attitude to, like, changing the way he thinks, I thought was really inspiring. Mm. I thought we could all learn something from being open to... And, like, there were times in his life when he believed some really crazy shit. Like, some of the Nation of Islam stuff, you're like, oh, my God. Yeah, what's <laughs> Like, what are you doing? Uh, but yeah. the thread that runs through it, like, of his analysis of white supremacy is so powerful, even at the height of the nation of Islam kind of fanaticism. Mm. I think that analysis still, the reason people were attracted to the nation of Islam is because that analysis is so powerful and it's still so powerful. Yeah. It's so worth reading. But, oh my God, the misogyny. Yeah. He hates women. Like, really? The way he talks about women, there's like, either he's hitting women, you know, like it's kind of like, the book is kind of in two halves. There's like his, like, life as a hustler mm. and, you know, a criminal in inverted mm. commas. But, you know, like, he is taking loads of drugs and stealing mm. loads of shit and basically, like, surviving in a way that a lot of people have to. Mm-hmm. In that phase of his life, he's hitting women. And right. then second phase of his life, when he's a minister for the Nation of Islam, he sees women as just, like, not very important. <laughs> like, I belong at ha- they belong at home and stuff. He's very, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, like, the way he talks about meeting his wife, he's like, yeah, and then I met her, and then I called her and was like, do you want to get married? And she was like, cool. And then he doesn't mention her again. Yeah, that's sad. Like, well, there is a about, lot of, There is a lot of talk, isn't there, about the women that have been erased from unbelievable. the black power movement. Unbelievable. Yeah. And, like, I, yeah, if ever you want to understand why black feminism is so important, mm-hmm. in a way that book basically sets out the case... Like, by what is not said, mm. 
It's interesting. I'm gonna have to read it because I've just started reading Gahinde Andrews' Back to Black. And he's yeah, he's obsessed with he, Malcolm X. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's basically like an ode to Malcolm X. I mean it's really good. Yeah. I haven't finished it yet. But um, yeah. But I d- that is one of Maybe I should read that as well. What's really interesting about the book is it's written at this moment where there are these newly formed nations in Africa, in South America, Indian subcontinent, mm. like all over the world, basically, places that were the British Empire, like part of France, mm. like French mm. Empire, whatever, have become independent nations. And it's this like moment of hope, which I think is really hard to recognize when you know what happened to so many of those countries. It is, like yeah. the kinds of ways in which, like, people were like, we could set up socialist governments. Yeah. And, like, you know that America is not going to let that happen. Yeah. And they're going to fuck shit up. But, like, Malcolm X was in that place at that time talking to these people. Mm. And, like, okay, you know, obviously the book is going to be, like, a particular kind of story. It's told a particular way to make a particular point. And it is very hopeful. And it ends on this message of hope, which is very inspiring. Mm. But, like, there's some, there must have been, it must have been so exciting. Yeah. Because, like, cause we're so far from any of that now. Yeah. Like, we're so far from the hope of nations doing the right thing. Mm. And, like, you um, know, the kind of... Whatever the right thing is, yeah. They think they're doing the right thing all the time. Yeah. And, like, knowing the brutalities that went on mm. under certain dictatorships or knowing, like, you know, I was talking about Chile to you earlier. Like, I was reading about um, the military coup in Chile in 1973 was overthrowing a socialist government with mm. the help of President Nixon. Like, he gave the military coup money. Mm-hmm. And people are still missing their loved ones. Like, they don't know what happened to them, don't know where they went. And, like, you know, obviously they were murdered by the regime, but they just disappeared and they've never mm. heard from them again. And, like, so sad. That, like, that's kind of the next chapter of the book, in a way. Or, like, yeah. what happened to the Black Power movement? Like, what the state did to those people? Mm. And like, yeah, read books, guys. <laughs> Education. Yeah, maybe we should really talk important. about. Maybe we should talk about books on our podcast as well, or like, yeah, edu- yeah educational books yeah. that we like. They're so um, yeah, they're so worth reading. Um, the other thing we're going to talk about is how annoying British TV is. Oh my god! So, <laughs> so picture the scene. <laughs> okay, I live in like a big house in Islington and it's you know a Wednesday evening and it's not Wednesday my dad plays football on Wednesday okay it's a Tuesday evening yeah we've had dinner cleared up mum and dad are like okay we're gonna go watch some telly do you wanna come and I'm like yeah I'd love to sit on the sofa and hang out with a dog that sounds great and I sit down and what are we watching we're watching Bodyguard yeah okay <laughs> so and who is the protagonist of Bodyguard it's a woman, she's white, she's middle-aged. She's got short brown hair. She's got short brown hair. <laughs> and she is very articulate. She speaks very well. She speaks very nicely. Has a lot of heterosexual sex. Oh, yes. Very explicit heterosexual sex. Yeah. She is a weird sexual allure. Yeah. I mean, in this case, it's Keely Cores, who is, like, super hot, so yeah. understandable. <laughs> but, yeah, or we're watching Black Earth Rising, Who's the protagonist? Who's the protagonist in that? Oh, it's a really posh, short-haired lawyer who lives in a really nice house. <laughs> oh, oh, you're watching? <laughs> we're watching Kiri. And the protagonist is a really posh woman with short hair 
who lives in a really nice house. Like, oh my God, I cannot be the only person who has noticed this weird, like all these stories are essentially, like they're all about the same person. It's about the same woman. Yeah. Who, you know, she's got, a really, she's got a degree from like a Russell Group University or Oxbridge. Oxbridge, usually. probably yeah, Oxbridge. Yeah, yeah. she probably she might have a master's or she's got a professional. She's a writer or she's a lawyer. Yeah, so she's like an um, intellectual. Yeah, and she lives in a house not dissimilar to mine, probably a bit tidier and yeah. like with a more a better kitchen because these people always have fucking amazing kitchens. Yeah, usually okay, Keely Hawes in. The bodyguard, bodyguard, sorry, not the bodyguard. I know I keep calling it the bodyguard. People are like, (laughs) Whitney Houston. Yeah. But no, bodyguard. Really nice house, and um, they usually have a family, though Keely Wilson bodyguard doesn't. Should we just say a few more just so people can get to our point? So many of them. Line of Duty. Oh, wait, who are we talking about? Line of Duty. Tandy Newton. Slightly different. That's the more racialized element. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, the missing. The missing. Apple Tree Yard. Apple Tree Yard, Broadchurch. I don't know if you guys are into Danish drama, but Borgen has this. All about women with a certain amount of power in society. Okay, in Borgen, she's the prime minister. She's got quite a lot of power. But, you know, they're usually upper middle class women, often with families where the husband, maybe he's emasculated Mm. or like... Maybe he's like just like a bit of a dick, yeah. Um, or doesn't earn as much as her, or whatever, or just like a bit suspect. Maybe he's having an affair. I don't mm. know. Mm. Then she'll have kids who are often kind of teenagers. Um, so it's like about the sexual politics between her and her husband, her and her teenagers. It's usually something weird. Like it's all about like this woman's psychology, mm. and then the cast of su- supporting characters are racialized, like whoever. Yeah. So in Kiri. Um, it's about a white family that adopts a black child and the black child is the daughter of a heroin addict and a criminal. Yeah. And she gets murdered when she's visiting her grandparents and the police... Spoiler, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, whatever. If you haven't watched by now, you're not going to watch it, I hope. Also, they're not that good anyway. (laughs) They're all basically the same. Black Earth Rising's good though because we really like Michaela Cole. Oh my God, I love her so much. I'm really excited to see how that comes out. Yeah, 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 same. And I feel like it will go against... What I we're hope saying, it will yeah. go these stereotypes because it's got a more internationalist perspective. And we were, we, because we, we were talking about these shows and like how there's always like a detective that's black, and, always, and there's a woman yeah. that's black. Like mm. if you're a black woman, you're in is as a, as a police detective in one of these dramas. Yeah. That is the only yeah. role you so can Michaela play. Cole you can never is be the exception. Yeah, absolute exception. She is a main character who's not a detective. She's just a character and like I think the first episode has already thrown up a lot of very interesting yeah like as I said like international political tensions yeah that most of these shows don't deal with most of these shows are based in either Britain or in Borgen's case Denmark and it's very much about the nuclear family what is happening to the nuclear family and terrorism so yeah then there comes in so terrorism so bodyguard obviously is about like the state all the terrorists are brown. Oh my god! Like Islamic terrorism is a threat, guys. And brown people are only allowed to be on TV if they are paedophiles or if they're terrorists. Yeah. And like, honestly, I was watching Bodyguard. And I was like, it was the first episode, and hijabi wearing woman yeah. was the bomber. And I was like, are you for real? Are I you paused kidding? it and I thought to myself. 
do I switch this off right now because I actually can't believe what is happening? Like, there are no other fucking stories that you can fucking tell. So is what's this really serious? interesting is I walked into my mum watching this halfway through the first episode, so I didn't see that. Oh. And I think that would have totally changed change your... change the way I viewed the rest of it because then when I first saw that character is there's a scene in um, uh, the police where so basically what happens at the beginning of this is very attractive uh, young white man saves brown woman from brown man that is literally that is that the is, opening that scene. is literally what happens that's literally what happens and then they have this scene later on I think it's in the third episode where brown woman she doesn't want to talk to anyone but then an attractive white man comes along and suddenly she saves like, her yeah she saves her again and she literally says to him thank you for saving me repulsive <laughs> and like you know she doesn't speak very good english and she's under the thumb oh, of her husband because like no shocking. brown woman has ever had any agency like he asked her all these questions she's like i don't know i wasn't allowed and like okay domestic abuse is a thing guys yeah, and lots yeah, of women yeah. are controlled by their partners but not all brown women are, are abused, abused by, by brown, brown men. men. Yeah, it's so like it's unbelievable. It's actually unbelievable. I can't believe no one's written that someone must have written yeah, about someone's it. Someone's written about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. like because whatever. it's like there are so many creatives out there. Like, imagine, right? I was just thinking, if I was into TV now as in a TV creative, I would be like, this is ridiculous. Like, there are so many other stories that we can tell. Like, it's either gotta be this like terrorist drama with the middle class woman as the protagonist or people in fucking bonnets and it's the fucking 16th century or whatever like do you know what I mean? like that's it look there are more stories to be told there are more and I think it is patronising it is to British audiences it is it's really say, you can only understand black people if they are criminals drug addicts or detectives detectives and in American TV, I was just saying, American TV, they're always really bad therapists. Like, I yeah. don't know if anyone's watched Crazy Ex Girlfriend, which I fucking love. But the therapist in that is just, she's awful. She's the only black woman in the yeah. whole thing. And she's a terrible therapist. She yeah. has no boundaries, guys. And then there's also Grace and Frankie, which is like a bit more Oh my God, I've, wa- I've watched some of that, like, yeah. randomly. As a black therapist. Yeah. There's a really extraordinary scene where this aging gay couple go to a therapist because they're having problems in their relationship and this woman is the only again the only black woman in the entire show she goes well to be honest like men can't really keep it in their pants so like probably you just need to sleep with other men what the important point here is that it wouldn't stand out if there were more or people of colour cast within these shows like it's just that they tend to put them as particular professions and it's just like insulting. professions that so the same with bodyguards the only black woman is a detective who has very few lines she just looks suspicious a lot of the time yeah oh and also uh, most the biggest stereotype ever that always happens in shows the first person to die black guy <laughs> it's like a badger and like it's this like a is such it's like a trope yeah. it's such a trope like everyone knows that that is the case and yeah. it's been the case for decades it's like decades. they're taking the piss out of it us. is like and it's like Oh, I wonder who's going to be the first day. And they're like, surely, surely. Surely not. not. Get... Always. 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 So, yeah. And then, like, in um, Line of Duty. So, what I think is really interesting about this, the first three seasons, I think they were on BBC Two and... I, I don't gonna, watch I Line gonna... of Duty, by the way. I don't okay. know. Like, Saskia watches, like, something I found out about you recently. You watch all the parent dramas. 
like dramas that I know my mum is watching. <laughs> you will definitely be watching them. Okay, some of them is with my parents. Line of Duty, I did. Watch Don't you watch Silent? Wit- you watch Silent Witness? Oh fuck off! <laughs> Only with my parents. That is literally, literally. So it's quite funny. I tweeted about how the worst thing about living with your parents in your twenties is that you have to watch Silent Witness, and the guy who directs it tweeted me back, being like, "Sounds like good parenting to me." And I was like. <laughs> That's so funny. And I was like, well, at least you can take a joke because it is... Like, he must know it's bad. Yeah, but... Oh. The guy who wrote Line of Duty and Bodyguard is called Jed Mercuro. And the first three seasons... Um, also, they've got Vicky McLaurin. And I love her. She's super hot. I'm really sorry. She's not gay. Anyway. Um, <laughs> that was the main reason to watch it. Okay. And, like, yes, problematic. All sorts of things going on. But, like, it is also kind of great. Then, the fourth season, they had, like, probably the biggest star they've ever had on it, which is Dandy Newton. Yep. Okay. Who, like, she's, like, a big fucking star, right? Yeah, yeah, She's, like, yeah. internationally famous. Yeah. And Jed Mercuro is given, like, he's not just written it, he's, like, directing it and producing it, and it's on BBC One. So, like, there's a big shift in the, like, making of the programme, and he is given so much control. Basically, her storyline is evil black women. Like, she is so evil. So, like, all the things she does, she, like... Okay, what the storyline is, I'm going to, like, total spoiler alert, so just, like, don't listen if you're ever going to watch season four of Line of Duty. But you think she's been murdered by a, some, like, some pathologist or something who's trying to cover up their own crime. Mm-hmm. She turns out not to have been murdered. She murders him. Right because otherwise she would have been murdered. Right. But she's a detective. So she then spends the rest of the series trying to cover up the murder, and, like, she has this cut in her arm that gets infected, and eventually she loses her arm. And, like, the infected arm is, like, a symbol of how evil has infected her. Like, she is not given any backstory, any motive. You don't see the scene where she kills him, so you have literally no idea what happened. It's her word against his, which is, like, a really common plot device of Jed Mercuro that, like, you're never quite sure who knows what. Like, yeah, she just, she literally, and, like, my little sister kept saying this, and it's so true, she's just portrayed as, like, a snake. Like, she's just pure evil. Yeah, Like, yeah. she's just give it like, she has no character. Yeah. Except that she murdered this guy, and you know she murdered him, and no one else knows. She's not allowed a backstory. She, she's not allowed to be, like, the white middle class. She, yeah. she has no humanity. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, like, if you watch things like another one of these shows is um, Happy Valley. Oh, God. Um... A guy murders a woman. And, like, honestly, I watched it and I kind of wish I hadn't because, like... It's grim. It's a bit triggering. Um, But there's a guy in it who's, like... He's another police officer and he strangles a woman with, like, a telephone cord or something. Yeah. He has given all this sympathetic backstory so that at the end, when he finally kills himself, you actually feel quite sorry for him. And yet, Bandy Newton is just... She's just a monster. She's arm. Yeah, yeah. She's she's not even allowed an arm. (laughs) It's grim. It's really disturbing. And like, there's something that you know. There's so many of these apple tree yard and broad church and like often like sexualized violence. Really sexualized. Yeah. Um, is part of these stories. This is why, and I know it's problematic because of reasons like tax and probably be in its own state now. But this is why I like Netflix. Yeah. There's a lot of shit on there, but there's a lot of good stuff on there. And if it's a Netflix original I have to say there is usually a very diverse cast with it like I would say I mean please someone write to us and correct me if I'm wrong but I would say most Netflix original stuff that I watch I'm like wow one of the main characters is black yeah and it's like oh my god they're black they're a drug dealer yeah yeah, it's not like that you're allowed to just play 
anyone. Be like, yeah. yeah. Like, there's a thing. We're having Ana Mixar on next week, which is really exciting. And he tweeted something recently, which is Riz Ahmed. Oh, Riz Ahmed. Saying something like... He says that he has to go to America because the doors open. Yeah, so he yeah. says something like that British national myth is, like, about white middle-class people and, like, we don't have a race problem, blah, blah, blah. Whereas the American national myth is, like, we're all going to fight aliens together. Like, doesn't matter what colour you are. And <laughs> so there's true. more space for people like him in that national myth. Like, it doesn't mean it's true. It just means yeah. that he can get a job. Yeah. And there is something... I just think, like, the reason stuff like this is important is because it's not only says a lot about how middle-class people want to see themselves Mm -hmm. because it's like, oh, my God, we're just so complicated and, like, we can suffer pain too Mm. because my husband's emasculated or Mm. my child is ill or, like, my job as Secretary of State isn't going that well or, like, you know, um, you know, like, and it is true that rich women are also victims of sexual violence Mm. and domestic violence and all that kind of stuff. Like, all that stuff is true. Can we have some other stories? Can we have some other stories? Like, can we recognise that people of colour are human beings with stories to tell? Like, the stories we tell ourselves as a nation, like the BBC, ITV, they have so much power Mm. still in an age where, like, the internet Mm. is producing... They've still got the power. They've still got so much power to control our national stories. And the story, like, what they're saying is also reinforcing ideas that we have about class, that middle-class people, white middle-class people, people with nice houses, are the people who are worth telling stories about. Mm. And the reason it's not worth telling stories about working-class people, no matter what colour they are, Mm. is because they are not worthy of having a Mm. voice. Mm. Like, that stuff matters... And I know I'm not the first person to say this. No, we're not the first people to say this. But we just wanted to it does really this. rile me. And like, yeah. was like you know, just like such a classic. And the classic one seems it seems to be a huge thing with British TV dramas about white people, where they have a scene in a Middle Eastern war torn country like Afghanistan, like Iraq, and they'll go there, and all the like tricksy Arabs will be doing tricksy things, like the night manager. That's another one. Like they always have oh, Keely Hawes or Olivia Coleman. Like what the fuck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, there are more stories to be told mm-hmm. about the Middle East, about all those countries. Than the ones that white people want us to tell. Yeah. Like, do you know how many people have died as a result of Western imperialism in the Middle East? Like, that. Those are the stories that we're not being told. Yeah. We're just we're just hearing about how they deserved it. Yeah. How you can't trust an Arab. That's basically what we've been told over and over again. Don't trust an Arab. Don't trust a brown person. They'll mm. fuck you over. Like, watch the Night Manager if you don't believe me. Mm. It's all like every single Arab is like. I'm rich and I'm probably kind trying to kill you. Yeah. And then the plucky British person goes in and saves the day. Oh, thanks, Olivia. <sighs> so, yeah, as I was saying to Chantal, my dad's always said to me the other day, stop calling everything racist. It's really tedious. But it is. Everything is racist. Everything is racist. And that's the message of the day. <laughs> You've been listening to the Surviving Society Alternative to Women's Hour with Chantal and Saskia. We'll be back every few weeks with a new episode. Don't forget to rate us and subscribe. Bye.